0: Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is another episode in our Sundance series, where from various apartments and houses and other hideaways uh, across the nation, uh, we are talking about a place I don't think any of us uh, will be. I mean, I guess I can see who comes to talk on the podcast, but that's, that's true as of now. And for our latest installment. I'm very pleased to be joined by Sundance veteran, programmer, critic, journalist, a true survivor of Sundance, as he'll explain, Eric Hines, curator of film at Museum of the Moving Image. Welcome, Eric. Hi,
1: Nick. Great to be here. I think that we both sort of began our festival podcasting career together at Sundance several years ago. So it's nice to, in this you know strange, dislocated year, to be doing this again.
0: That's true. That is true. Yes. We're carrying on the the tradition. And now that it's almost a necessity to do it this way, as as opposed to the scramble to be in the same physical place at the festival. Yeah, What is it like for you this year? This is only the second time that you haven't been in Park City for Sundance in a while.
1: Yeah. I mean, my, my first year at the festival was January 2006. And then I only missed, since then, I only missed January 2009. Because I went to grad school, otherwise I've been at Sundance in various capacities. Uh, So it's incredibly strange to not be there this time of year, experiencing in some fashion this year. I'm I'm grateful for it, but I'm I'm also missing being there in person, missing seeing people, missing being in those spaces. You know, realizing the dynamism of of those buildings uh, and the the screening rooms and the history that each one of them has for better and for worse. But but I think what you're referring to. Briefly, is uh, I left Sundance last year uh, with one less body part, which is when I had an emergency uh, appendectomy uh, on the last day. I actually left the award ceremony where I had been giving away awards as a juror. Didn't go directly to the emergency room, but was in the emergency room within a couple hours and, uh, and had surgery the next morning. So I actually left later than I ever have Sundance. I think I left on the Tuesday after everyone had been gone. So I had my glimpse of Park City right after Sundance is over and it's a lot emptier. I'll tell you that much.
0: Well, we, yeah, it was, it was a relief to learn that you were, you were okay. Did you, you actually did give away uh, or help give away the awards on stage while you were suffering?
1: It's a much longer story, Nick, but you know, one time you want to an entire episode to my appendicitis. Uh, I'm happy to <laughs> narrate you through. But yes, I was in immense pain throughout the award ceremony, and I had no idea why, of what was going on with me. But I did indeed, I did, I manned up to give away uh, an award on stage um, before it all came crashing down. The last thing I will say, and the last thing I saw about this is that, um, the last thing I remember uh, coming off the stage and the, the pains were rushing back after the endorphins kept it at bay to be on stage was uh, a juror for another jury, um, Ethan Hawke, who I don't know, just basically looking over to our group as we were coming off stage and said, great job. So the last thing I heard was the affirmation of uh, American actor Ethan Hawke before, and <laughs> that, but then almost all sense of time uh, disappeared from that point forward. That's that's, that's enough of my uh, appendix.
0: Yeah, I I I don't I don't mean to make you uh, relive relive it, but it's it's just kind of too good a story not to hear. But everyone is glad you are well. Uh, Ethan Hawke sends his best. Uh, so, uh, now we can we can safely talk about about the festival in good health. You've seen a few movies by now and you're kind of looking at things from a programming perspective or also critical perspective all at once,
1: both, you know, which is the way I'm trying to somehow normalize this the best that I can, not only because we're missing being there, but also because as a programmer, these are these are strange times. There's a lot of work that's being put towards things other than thinking of, of programs of films and, and the context for them. Um, and also as a writer, you know, it's it's been a long time since I wrote such little um, in terms of criticism. So to kind of jumpstart myself, I'm kind of really just diving in here and watching as many films as I can. So yeah, I, I think I'll probably lean towards documentaries just because that's what I tend to write about and also have a passion for in terms of programming. But uh, I think that I'll be able to cover some serious ground beyond that too in the next couple of days.
0: Well, let's, let's talk about one of those documentaries, Summer of Soul. Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. Which is a reference to a Gil Scott Heron song, I guess, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. a great song. And actually... Another song of his I thought of during the movie Whitey on the Moon because there's a great sequence where they're asking some of the concert goers uh, what they think of the fact that man has landed on the moon, which happened the same summer as this concert, and mostly they're not impressed. Yeah. But to to step back a bit, what was the summer of soul?
1: Yeah, well, it's first first off, it's by Questlove, uh, Amir Khalid Thompson. Uh, Aka Questlove, uh, his first film. Yeah, it's it's the summer of '69. It's several months or several weeks even before Woodstock, and it was a fe- cultural festival in in, in Harlem, uh, several days long. That uh, was a, a really big deal. Hundreds of thousands of people attended, uh, and it was recorded. And yet, uh, it, it sort of faded from popular understanding or memory. It's just it's it's lunacy that that still happens to us and Lucy that happens uh, at a time like that, that is so well-documented and so discussed ad nauseum even. Um, but, you know, the point is made in the film that, you know, when when really your topic is black America and there are a lot of other things going on culturally at that time this this gets sort of shunted off to the side and or at least was for complicated and interesting reasons in terms of what the stories are behind it um, which are really only nodded to here Uh, but regardless the the archival footage really was not put to use until now I think there's something about 40 hours 50 hours of of music I think that that wound up being the the basis for this film and uh, like I saw this being programmed. I saw it as an opening night film and I just assumed it would be fine. And I did not expect the footage to be extraordinary. I also didn't expect the filmmaking to be really strong and to be considered and interesting and challenging and unexpected. Uh, almost everything about this was kind of eye-opening.
0: There's always a risk that it's it's not going to be the greatest thing ever, but uh, oh, yeah. I also was so energized by the, the filmmaking and just the editorial approach, the way the, the the acts are all discussed, and also just the fearlessness, you know, with which all the acts are discussed. There's not really a worry that people are going to tune out at any point, um, which right. you know gives right. this huge freedom to show us, you know, groups or people that we know but also some that are left out of, of concert medley docs uh, often.
1: There's a bit early where we see a lot of fifth dimension who were the most popular act in America at the time, but also no one thought of them as, as a black act, and they were making what many would consider sort of white theatrical pop, you know, in a kind of like a vocal tradition that had been eclipsed or was beginning to get eclipsed by, by, by rock and soul. But, a lot of time is spent on that performance and what that mean meant for the to the performers and what it may have meant for the audience to sort of have them there and it's not easy but it's also just what a decision to focus on that you have so many classic acts that like you said like we all know and we're desperate to see that footage to make that choice to show that much of fifth dimension um like on a, on a filmmaking level on a creative level is just kind of thrilling to to see somebody make that choice
0: yeah and and the way that quest love gets into the i don't know like the set the set list in a way is just is just great uh, i mean basically it starts with you know stevie wonder so that's already terrific you know i could watch him on on stage uh, endlessly
1: drums too which you don't really see
0: shows him on drums and then this launches like a montage that kind of sets sets the movie going sets the momentum of the movie where the touchstone is is coming back to stevie wonder on drums and it's just this great way of like just i don't know imagining as the movie's coming together bits and pieces like ricocheting or flying off as he's doing this this drum solo That's it's incredible so it's just and that's something he continues is often using the particular musicians as like a touchstone, this kind of centrifugal force for future sequences in the movie. And I just, that's an amazing way of integrating the historical material and the musical uh, material, but I'm kind of rambling about that. I don't know what, what were some of your um, highlights?
1: Oh man. I mean, I just listen, I mean, this this is going to sound like a backwards compliment, but like when it comes to um, these, uh, you know, treasure chests of archival footage, I am so drawn to that and I'm drawn to these situations that I immediately start having issues with almost every decision because I just want to see the footage. If, if the movie starts and I realize this footage exists, it could be 25 hours long and i will be like, great, keep going, <laughs> just keep showing it to me. I just want it. And so what's kind of remarkable here is, of course, I have that feeling left and right. I want to see some performance complete or I get a taste of somebody being there and I want to see more from them. But that's a that's part of it. Right, and so like to have somebody, uh, to have a group of 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 creative people here, kind of make these strong choices, and kind of make me go with it. The I'm having a dialogue with it. You know, I'm Mm. I'm an active viewer. I'm sort of responding to the choices that are being made, and I'm being shown things while I'm also asking for things, and it knows I'm asking for them, and may not give it to me, but it's aware of me. Being introduced to things, and I don't, so and so that my my relationship with it was really activated, and I'm and I wanted to watch it almost immediately afterwards, just to sort of appreciate the things that I did see and maybe be a little bit less anxious about what what I was going to see next. Which again is I think a really good thing about a film like this is um, there's just so much to see and there's so much um, that I could be shown, uh, and so. Yeah you know, and then, you know, I don't know, it's like an hour and a half into it. And I realized like some of the great stand-up comedians are just also there. And they were also giving, you know, they also like had performances as part of this and and that they were like, it's it's very sort of focused on black acts. And then there's also kind of Puerto Rican acts. And there's also sort of like other areas of Harlem that are being accessed via certain, you know, Cuban performers. And like that starts getting opened up and discussed. And, you know, and I think that the, the, Questlove's uh, understanding of that music and his curiosity about all these different strands of music become crucial because there's just so much, he's conversant with all of it. And it made me realize how uh, over the years, uh, seeing a lot of major black artists have documentaries made by people that really, it it was strange that these people were making these films. It was almost like once you reached a certain level of kind of, Uh, work a day documentary filmmaking then you what then you'd get a James Brown doc which never Mm -hmm. really made any sense in terms of like whatever the relation but almost in every single one of these films Questlove would come up and be an amazing subject and, and be so smart and engaging about music and the narratives behind them and also get into musicology but express it in a way that the viewers could understand like he was always the ace in the hole when it came to these other documentary films, so it was really kind of wild to recognize that mind making decisions on the other side of it, and so yeah, it was just kind of a thrill.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, he really shows up a lot of people in recent years and in, in longer doc history who have made uh, either concert docs or music history docs. It's musicology. You're absolutely right. It, he has a way of moving through the the people in the the set. That's I mean, I don't know what the order of the set list was, but he somehow makes, he simultaneously does like the chronology or of the time. He does the chronology, or what feels like the chronology of the set list. He does like musicology comparisons along the way. Uh, and, yeah. you know, also like local politics with Mayor Lindsay, national politics as well. It's, and then, oh, there's one other thing we haven't talked about, which are the reaction shots, which is another interesting element.
1: No, there's. I mean, it's all of this exists, and it's less than two hours long. I mean, if if anything, it could be Woodstock length, and we wouldn't be complaining about it. So again, that's again me wanting more. Um, but it covers so much ground and does it well. There were three cameras, from what I heard, or, or, or two or three cameras. So there there was coverage. Um, and there was a, there's one strange shot that's almost like a TV shot. That's a it's like head on. It's like the end of a of a catwalk, basically. That is is you know, sort of centers things. And in some ways it's the least interesting shot, but they always have that to go back to. And then there's several other cameras and and, and there's, there does seem to be a camera on the audience at almost all times.
0: Yeah. Which is crucial. That's another subtlety in the movie is that you see how people are reacting to different kinds of music, celebrating and enjoying different kinds of music in sort of different ways. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but uh, I guess I should just stop talking about music generally. I mean, like just to single out like one or two things it's placed at the center of the movie. So like, it's clear, uh, they, everyone knows how powerful it is, but the kind of combination of Mahalia Jackson Mm -hmm. and uh, Mavis Staples. Yeah. That sequence is just off, off the charts. I mean, I, 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 I no longer felt there was a glass, whatever TVs are made of now. I no longer felt like that was between me and what I was watching. It was, just riveting and beautiful and even just watching facial expressions during that of, of, Milo Jackson and Emily Staples kind of, I'm sounding too hyperbolic here, but I, I just, that was just amazing.
1: No, and, and, you know, it's like Jesse Jackson is sort of presiding over that entire piece too. Like the whole thing is a dedication to Martin Luther King who like in context had really just been murdered. Like it's just, it's just, it, it's, it's overwhelming what's what you're watching and the context in which, it's all taking place it's hard not to be hyperbolic because that's that's this is the, this is what we're looking at
0: yeah yeah it's exactly exactly and and it's crazy in a movie like this you know you can have Nina Simone um and she's terrific and so are five other people you know it's um it's yeah. it's really kind of funny I should have probably looked up who the editor's name is or, or the editor team
1: Josh Pearson is the editor who's a very good editor like there's we saw this yesterday at the world premiere. Like, there's a lot more here, and I have a feeling that there'll be a lot more to be said about this in the coming months. Uh, in terms of that, the you know the conditions of the of the footage and and who was making it, and the the person who had sort of kind of directed the recording of this didn't actually direct the film in the end. I think he passed away a few years ago. So there's there's a there's a story behind this that, or several stories behind this that are worth mining. But uh, yeah, I don't you and I are not prepared to get into that quite yet.
0: Um, one other just tiny thing is just, I mentioned reaction shots. And, and, and yeah. what I mean is that they show people watching the yeah. footage. Um, like people today, they, they show the footage to people who, uh, you know, lived uh, in, in Harlem or, or grow, grew up then and they talk to them now and show them some footage. And then they also show, you know, contemporary musicians. Uh, now
1: yeah there's contemporary folks reacting to it um yeah and there are people who performed watching themselves perform uh, and it doesn't it doesn't make too much of this element you know it's it's been used in some other documentaries and um, I think in a showier way another this is this is sort of a just an element there but I think it, it kind of works as much as it's in there it works to see people react
0: well I think you're right that this is something that uh we'll we'll t- be talking more about uh down the road so that's summer of soul and there was another documentary that I think you wanted to talk about from a filmmaker who I know for Democrats.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Democrats, was just 2000, yeah, 2014. The filmmaker is Camilla Nielsen. Uh, and this is very much a follow up to Democrats. I don't think it was ever meant to be a follow up. I don't think there was ever a plan when Democrats was being made that there would be a follow up called President seven years later. Um, but it really is a continuation. It's a kind of staggeringly thorough piece of observational documentary filmmaking. Democrats is a piece that I, is a film that I really, really appreciated and wrote about uh, for you for Film Comment years ago. One of the many things I responded to it was the fact that it had central figures, but it did not shape them as characters. That it was basically a document of the making, writing of a, of a constitution in Zimbabwe um, and the complications of writing that constitution. And there are so many things to glean from it. There's so much to learn about the country and about the sort of painful process of trying to create a democracy out of a dictatorship. And it resulted in the creation of a, of a document, but one that was almost immediately put aside or, or abused by Robert Mugabe. What happened, of course, is that several years later, Mugabe was deposed. And he was deposed by somebody who figures centrally in Democrats, as it happens um uh Emerson Menanganwa. Basically those circumstances which the world sort of saw as like, oh great, finally Mugabe's gone, the dictatorship is over, but it was basically a military coup. Um and it was in some ways just a power play among people who were allies for a long time. And so uh what president does is it picks things up about a year or so after that and there's going to be an actual first truly supposedly truth first truly free election now that Megabe is gone and the opposition is led by Nelson Shamisa who is this very charismatic young impassioned he was a student activist and you know in, in some ways improbably he becomes the head of of the opposition uh, you know there had been sort of people senior to him uh, that 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 didn't make it this far that passed away before we got to this point simply it's an election documentary you know which at this moment, after we've lived what we've lived through in the United States, it's you know I I'd, I I'd forgive anybody to they hear that and they feel like that's the last thing I want to watch is an is is like a sort of minutely detailed election documentary. Um, and there are plenty of them in the documentary field. I think is on another level, um, because it is so exhaustive, and it is not looking to find the standard beats of an election documentary. You know, the, one of the things that I, th- I think that that gets a little bit exhausting about election documentaries is they all have these beats, and we all know, you know, how those things get structured and what we're building towards. And this one doesn't really do that in many ways because the story is, yes, it's about the gathering of a, of a movement, but it's also about the kind of like the the um, betrayal. You know, there's basically the, the the charade of democratic process that is one side is never going to be taken seriously. And the other one is going to, in some ways, try to force its way into being taken seriously so that democracy can take root. So it winds up having real, there's real depth to it um, and there's real pain to it. Um, And I would say that more than half of the film Takes place after the election. So you're really not building towards what, as what I said, the sort of the standard beats of these things. A lot of it takes place after that. And the access is extraordinary. You know, you've got this European filmmaker who developed these relationships in a whole other film over the course of, I think, three years of shooting Democrats and returning here and having a similar level of access um, so that you just get to be in the car, you get be- to be in the room, you get to be there's a firefight there, there, you know, like it's, 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 you really get to see this play out. And, and, you know, as much as we may be uh, exhausted by such stories, I think there's something really, really important about this because it's also not ultimately shaping itself for us. It's just doing, it's doing justice to what is being observed, which I'll take any day over having somebody try to tell, make Zimbabwe's story relevant to me. It is relevant to me. It's relevant to me whether or not we just had our election, play out the way that it did in the United States. If that hadn't happened, it would still be relevant because of the minuteness of the tale and the sort of conviction of its making and of its, of the people being recorded. So, I mean, a a, a major work, but you know, not, not an easy sit right now.
0: It sounds like a movie where the filmmaker has succeeded in telling it from the inside.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it is told from, from the inside, but I do think that the fact that it's not the sort of film that calls attention to the fact that Europeans are making it, but they make some really strong choices to include european press and world figures and other sort of folks who v- participate in the process in africa or participate in the process specifically in zimbabwe and they're not necessarily the subject but they're very much there so you're not you're not being compelled to pretend that none of that's that's a factor and that, and that there's not a dynamic there
0: one thing I, I wanted to ask about about it is how does it handle showing members of Local communities, for lack of a better word, because that's also always strikes me as like a challenge with election documentaries or political documentaries is how you represent the crowd.
1: That's a great question because her instincts are not quite Frederick Wiseman level, but like when it comes down to it, she's interested in kind of groups of people and processes that the groups of people are working through. Um, There are a number of people that are, are are central to the story, but I I wouldn't say that it goes too far into. Community, there are some scenes um, of them visiting folks. There are scenes of rallies where we spend a little bit more time and the people who are attending the rallies.
0: It's just one of these challenges that I'm, I'm just kind of fascinated with in, in terms of just documentary medium. How do you represent that? You know, how, how do you represent yeah. Yeah. The, the, the collective? And it's just interesting to see the different solutions that, that people come up with. It's great that uh, Nielsen gives herself the time and the space to explore things at, at the length you're doing, because it seems that is part of what's what's necessary to even try to portray this.
1: If you're if if you're thinking of making a 90 minute film for various reasons, and you have to hit these beats over 90 minutes, and like once you limit yourself to that, you almost you know it's almost like impossible not to think of it in terms of those beats. Yeah, then you kind of like take this. Tough, complicated situation, and you kind of force it into that box. And this this doesn't do that. I think by having it being a little over two hours, um, if anything, structurally, you give yourself almost a full length film to tell one story and then tell the the aftermath, which just makes a lot of sense here.
0: Yeah, and at the risk of sounding scoldy, um, there's maybe less excuse for people to skip a movie like this during the festival when uh, there's the flexibility that, that many of us have. Uh, So I I hope, I hope critics do, do check this out. And uh, president.
1: What have you been looking at? What have you been watching?
0: A little of this, a little of that. Um, Well, one thing that I saw recently is John and the hole, which is one of those movies. It's a fiction film that has a cryptic description uh, which can cut both ways, I think, for a movie. I, I always find it kind of funny when that gambit is, is taken. I don't know, it's like a bluff in, in poker or something. But in this case, it's a, I would say, pretty recognizable hybrid of like a, I don't know, early 2000s indie and, I don't know, also certain kinds of European um, art film approaches that kind of apply a very severe scenario to to a family, a suburban family, and then just see how it plays out. And in this case, basically a, a, a boy, a teenage kid, I mean, I don't know even how far he is into his teens. He has the opportunity to put his entire family, meaning his mom, his dad, and his caring sister, into a bunker, an abandoned bunker that exists somewhere within walking distance of his beautiful suburban home uh, that's in in the country, I guess I'm saying suburban, but maybe it's it's sort of set off in the forest, but it's clear it's part of there's a soccer mom at some point, so I'm pretty sure it's it's supposed to be some form of suburbia, but at any rate, they are you know comfortable upper middle class um, and the family where nothing seems to be awry except for the fact that their son pretty smoothly segues from his daily life into drugging them one by one and dragging them and putting them in a hole i i since that's basically like the main drama of the movie maybe i'll leave the rest of the movies what's mysteries intact what's the tone uh it's a good question i mean that's part of what's uh, interesting about it. it, just it has this astringent. That's a bit why I referenced, like you know, European art house opposed, as opposed to just the various disaffected, spooked-looking teens of like early two thousand indies. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking of Chum Scrubber, <laughs> but th- but this this is this is just has more kind of more of a hollow affect. And I th- what I can't decide, and this is why I'm still working out what I feel about the movie. I can't decide if the kid is supposed to be legitimately sociopathic um, or if he's more supposed to be this, you know, kind of symptomatic being Uh, that's, that's just, yeah, it's just one of those things. Um, I mean, there's clearly something a little um, off about him, but he does, you know, play video games just like a normal kid with, with his friend and various other signs that he's kind of just, you know, going through life such as it is. Um, It's not quite a thrill. There's obviously suspense, because you wonder what's going to happen now that he has his entire family in a hole in the ground. Um, And how far will they take it? Because that's another thing. There's a somewhat rich, and by rich, I mean pungent history of people in confinement like this, because they're just there in a hole. And it's like, oh, I kind of wanted to see what, you know, Jennifer Ehlers' gonna do with this character but uh there's sometimes it seems there's only so much you can do when you're part of an entire family that's in a hole and you're just like this cutaway sequence uh, for a while the title i think is probably purposely has a fairy tale simplicity to it um, and there is an interesting thing that sets the whole movie a bit off balance which is that there's this frame story except you can't tell which is the frame story at a certain point um, about a girl who's being told a, a story by her mother. Um, and that's interesting. Um, I can't shake the feeling somehow that it's there to kind of complicate something that maybe wouldn't feel too complicated. I don't know. That's where I'm at with it. So I'm going to let it sit in the, the hole. thing
1: about Sundance and our experiences at festivals like this is that we get to go from president to John on the hole. Um, without there being any connection whatsoever, but it also leaves us sort of naked trying to figure out what the hell to make of one thing versus the other when we're seeing one after the other, often on a day.
0: You're you're absolutely right. It's it's also weird because I think this was a movie that was going to show at Cannes uh, last spring, and It's probably productive to see it in a different context here. Uh, The director is uh, Pascual Sisto, who is definitely better known as a gallery artist. I'm not sure this is the kind of like bravura debut feature of of a gallery artist. You know, is this family just a device, you know? So I don't know. You you tend to have conflicted feelings when there's a family uh, in a hole. So... (laughs) But I, I guess probably we're all going to, all meaning you and I, are going to go back to, to watching some movies. So I don't want to cut into your time for that. Did you want to talk about quickly just one, other, one or two other movies?
1: The other two films I've seen so far are in the same breath. The Nan Fu Wang film, which I think you've, you discussed with Amy Taubin uh, last uh, episode, which I, 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 I like very much. And I saw The Most Beautiful Boy in the World. Uh, just before we got on here. So I don't, I definitely don't have any fully formed thoughts. Um, I was curious about this because it's about uh, a young actor, or who he was once the young actor, uh, Bjorn Andresen, Swedish boy who was cast in uh, Visconti's uh, Death in Venice in the early 70s. And it's about the, the life that he led, you know, the circumstances of him being cast and the life that he led since then. It's sort of overtly or aggressively poetic in its approach and aestheticized in its approach, which can be fine. Um, but uh, there's there's a way in which it kind of refuses to land anywhere um, that I found really, really tough and and even sort of, you know, eyebrow raising a bit in terms of like what it left or felt directed me to, to think, uh, whether it's about Visconti, whether it's about homosexuality, whether it's about childhood trauma, you know, there's all kinds of things going on and there's an incredibly interesting story of his life um, but it all, it all sort of like kind of gets stirred up like a snow globe and you're sort of watching things settle. Um, and though I, I certainly appreciate that way of approaching a work of art or telling somebody's story and of a way of taking it in, it, it maybe felt like a little bit less I like didn't add up to enough and, and and left me questioning what it was up to. But those are immediate responses.
0: And is he the most beautiful boy in the world?
1: <laughs> well, he was called that by Visconti uh, on the press tour. And immediately that became the thing that was quoted and he was referenced that way. Um, he's obviously a very, very, very beautiful human being at the age of 15 and remains one. Um, actually uh, he continues to act and he was actually the uh, man who is ceremoniously killed in uh, Midsommar, the 2019
0: film. Oh, wow. Okay. He's, the old guy who gets thrown off the cliff. I'm sure there's some significance in, 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 in casting him that I, I'm going to have to unpack now. Um, for some reason, this is reminding me, wasn't there another, this Conti, Helmet Burger
1: Helmet Burger actor. Yeah, no, I was thinking about that quite a bit. Very
0: different film.
1: <laughs> a very different Helmut mm-hmm. actor from a few years ago, which we showed at first look at the museum. Um, and one of the, one of the times that we showed a film and somebody then, informed me several years later to let me know that he canceled his membership to the museum because we showed that film um, but was back and giving us another chance a couple years later and I forget what he was watching but I was very nervous about sending him away again but Helmut Berger actor yeah very 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 different film (laughs) another beautiful Visconti actor um, who uh, had a complicated adult life yes it is a it is a is a scene about a man Gone to seed and and gone to sort of deep deep perversions after a certain point and has a very complicated relationship with the director, very differently made. And I, I I can't help but say that I I prefer the questionable approaches that led to the document that is Helmut Berger actor more than I appreciated the most beautiful boy in the world.
0: Well, I I smell a whole cottage industry in uh, Visconti, uh, uh, be- beautiful beautiful men for for documentaries. So uh, look for more Hollywood if you're listening. I'm sure there'll really be a 10-part series of Visconti stars. Actually, not a bad idea. Um yeah. they should just have a just have a 10-part series that's basically just spliced together scenes of Visconti movies. So by the by the last episode, you're just watching uh Ludwig.
1: <laughs> Some would take take you up on that.
0: All right. Well, I think that'll bring us to the end here. But we'll, we'll go back to our, our viewing. Thank you, Eric, for taking the time. And we'll check in back down the road when, when you've seen 300 more movies.
1: <laughs> I look forward to it. As always, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Repold. The opening music is called Montserrat by The Minarets. For a list of movies discussed in this episode, sign up at Rapold.Substack.com. Thank you for listening.